put up our Bibles to Romans chapter 14. As we continue our study from Romans, and in particular, looking at matters of the conscience. Romans chapter 14, if you're a guest with us, Romans is in the New Testament. It's after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, and then you'll find Romans. But we'll have the words up on the screen as I read our passage uh, for the morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and I am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. Do not for, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean. But, if, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Like I said, we're going to continue our study in Romans, and particularly this uh, thorny topic of the conscience. Uh, thorny, and just in the sense not that you hear that term and you think, oh, this is controversial, but, but it really hits on uh, the, the day-in, day-out interactions we have, especially as uh, people of conviction, right? Certainly, I hope we are. I hope we have convictions. I hope we believe truth and want to stand for the truth. But sometimes we disagree. Sometimes, I know it's hard to believe for some of you, but you're wrong. And sometimes, I'm wrong. More often than not, just ask my, my wife. She'll tell you. And so we need to learn how to engage, as we're going to see what makes for, for peace, what is truly a matter of the kingdom of God. We're going to have to learn to exercise wisdom in, in really what hills we're willing to die on. And what we're going to learn is that most things aren't worth dying for. And I'm going to qualify all that. But we're talking about the matters of the conscience. Our, our consciences are all informed differently. 
uh, from our, our upbringing to our experiences to our, our, our mental capacity to the things that we understand from Scripture, the way we were taught, the way we were, we were brought up, all these factors and even things that we're unaware of, they impact our conscience. And oftentimes our, our conscience overlaps and, and we don't see the conflict. Sometimes there's areas where we disagree. But more importantly, there are areas where our, each of us have our conscience aligned rightly with the will of God, rightly with the Scriptures. But there are areas that we're, I hope we're unaware of where we're not aligned. And some of us will think the other person's wrong, and, and we'll think we're right, and, and that gets us in thorny situations when we don't understand these matters. And, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. I think these two chapters are, are, are two of the most important chapters for just practicing biblical love and harmony and unity in the church. And I think many people don't understand them. I think that many, and, and I see us, I think this is a particular issue in our church. That's why I'm slowing down. I see it all the time, and I don't even think we're aware of it sometimes. Of where we are just overly dogmatic about things that we shouldn't be. And, and sometimes we disagree over things that, uh, you know what, neither of you are right. Or, you, you know what, yeah, you're right, but you, it, do you really want to die on that hill? And so where I'm hoping to press us, and more importantly, where I, I think God, through His Spirit and the preaching of His Word, is going to press us, is how to walk in wisdom according to the principles of God's Word. And sometimes things aren't black and white. And some of us live in that. It's right or wrong. It's yes or no. It's right or it's completely wrong. But that's not how life works, is it? It's not how life works. There are absolutes we're going to see. But oftentimes, because we live in a fallen world, things aren't always as clear as they may seem to be to you. So let me back up. I kind of got a, a little bit ahead of myself. But what do we mean by matters of the conscience? I've been given this definition. I, I don't have it on the screen for you. I'm assuming you're starting to get it so you can just hear it. And be reminded, by matters of the conscience, we're talking about each person's capacity to make moral judgments based on what they believe to be right or wrong. So what you believe is right or wrong informs your conscience so that you, you make moral judgments. And so that, that affects all of us. We make judgments about everything constantly. And some things that bother one person don't bother another. Because our conscience is informed differently. And so when we're speaking of matters of conscience, we're, we're forced to recognize that there are matters in the life of the church in which believers are going to disagree. There will not be, until Jesus returns, total uniformity. There won't be. So we got to have our expectations calibrated correctly. We can't expect something that isn't going to fully be realized till Jesus returns, okay? We have to recognize that. And if you don't recognize it, well, then you're never going to live in harmony with anybody. 
because everything's an absolute. And so there's going to be disagreements among us. Sometimes they're going to be minor things. Sometimes there's going to be great, hard disagreements. But the Scripture doesn't leave us with our hands tied behind our back. Scripture informs us in what we need to do. So why do these disagreements come about? Well, well some Christians, as we've, we've seen, Paul calls them the weaker brother or sister in this text, they're going to have an overly sensitive conscience that's not biblically informed on a matter. And I would go further. This is not about your Bible knowledge or limited to that. This person could be very astute in the things of the Scripture, but they don't understand how to apply Scripture. They don't understand wisdom. Or it could just mean someone just doesn't understand. They haven't been taught the Bible. And so their conscience isn't aligned with God's will. But nevertheless, someone's conscience is overly sensitive, and it can cause them to think, that something is sinful or ungodly, which actually isn't. Okay, So sometimes someone can think something's bad, ungodly, unpleasing to the Lord. And, and so they do not participate. They don't, they don't rejoice in that. They think that's evil. But then there's other Christians who, 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 who says, no, I don't think that's right. I, I don't think God has a problem with that. And so coming to the other side of the equation, the, the strong ironically, even those who have a biblically informed conscience on a matter can basically be guilty of the same thing that the weaker brother can do. That is, impose your conscience upon another person. Begin to press it upon them. Be frustrated with them. Lack any patience with another. Because you just, at the end of the day, just you need to be like me. You need to think exactly like I think, do exactly like I do. If you don't, we have issues. Both the weak and the strong can be tempted to be that way. Now, speaking of the strong, because this is where Paul is turning his attention. He's now going to turn to, and I'm assuming all of us in here are saying, oh, okay, he's now talking about me. He's talking about the strong in the faith, the mature in the faith. Y'all weren't catching that. Uh, uh, but those of us who think we're mature in the faith, he's talking to us. How do you work with the person who's not as biblically informed as you are? What do you do? How do you respond? And what's happening here and what I think often happens if we don't wrestle with these principles is that ironically, the strong who, who in our day doesn't want to be a Pharisee, doesn't want to be a legalist, actually becomes a legalist. They actually become that. Because they set themselves as a standard by which this is what is right or wrong. Me. My biblical maturity. My liberty. And if you don't understand the things that I understand, well, you're just not really a, a faithful Christian or you're just some inferior being amongst me. And it just breeds a pride and arrogance. And so in this way, the strong takes what is their liberty or their preference that God allows, that God says is good, and they elevate it beyond its proper priority. They elevate it and make it a requirement or expectation. Now, those of us who do that, we're biblically astute enough not to call it that, but that's what we do in practice. And so such issues of the conscience not only concern, here, here, here I'm trying to, kind of take some feedback I've received and questions and trying to 
organize this before we jump in. But such issues of the conscience are not merely concerned with matters of practice, the things we do. Whether you can go have a beer, that's one of them. But it's also matters of theology, what you believe. In fact, the two actually overlap because what we think and what we believe impacts what we do. You can't separate them, the two. And so these are very theological issues. These are doctrinal issues. We're going to talk about some of us are going to disagree doctrinally. And we're going to have to learn where do we allow disagreement and where don't we allow disagreement. And if you think it's all the same, well then goodness, you're never going to get along with anybody. Because you've now become the standard. And so I'm going to hit harder on the strong because Paul hits harder on the strong this morning. And I think you can take it. So it's going to turn up the heat a little bit more. But I'm talking to myself most of the time when I get most animated. So here in our passage, Paul is specifically addressing how the church gets along and eagerly maintains the unity of the body when some people think something is sin or that something's a biblical requirement that actually isn't. The strong realize that's not a biblical requirement. That's where we're going to focus our attention this morning. However, the principles we're going to consider uh, even apply to issues of preference. And this is what I mean. Paul, Paul's talking about in this text, someone thinks something is sin. It's actually not. And the strong are going to condescend in a positive way to the weak over matters that someone thinks are sin. If we are to give up our preferences for the sake of that situation, how much more should we give up and defer to one another in matters we don't think are of life and death? Do you understand? Here, we're going to, and I'm going to point this out, this can get to salvific proportions, dangers if we cause someone to stumble. But how much more should we be charitable to one another in matters of preferences, where, where two good Christians within the same denomination, within the same church, disagree. Can you live with that? Can you? That doesn't mean you don't do anything about it, but are you okay with that? Paul says you should be, and, and we're going to see that. Now, it should go without saying that Romans 14 and 15, do not teach, I want you to hear this because I've gotten this feedback. Do not teach that everyone should just do what is right in their own eyes, and if you don't like it, get over it. That's not the principle. He's not saying, oh, your conscience bothers you, mine doesn't, leave me alone. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. There is a path forward, but where wisdom comes in play is, is do you have the path forward to speak in that person's life? You might not. And you need to trust God's ways and structures by which he grows believers. So we're not talking about just get over it. No, we're, we're going to push our, our way forward. And, and the way forward is going to rest on the truly mature. Because they're the ones who see the way forward. The, the weak has tunnel vision. They only see the situation from one perspective. Because they just, they don't know. And that should be, we should have grace to individuals like that. 
here's what I want us to understand. True unity in the, bio, in the body of Christ, it is found around the truth of Christ, okay? Yes, so, so those of us who are, are, are very animated, everything's a hill to die on, yes, hear me say, truth matters. There are absolutes. We're not talking about relative truths here. We are truth people. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It is the buttress and pillar of the truth, Paul says to Timothy. And so we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We should tenaciously guard the truth of God's word and the integrity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must uphold orthodox doctrine which define true Christianity from that which is false. All that is true and Paul can still say the things that he's going to say. What are some of these, what I like to call first-level issues, core essential issues that are, aren't up for debate? Belief in the triune God, the person and work of Christ to redeem sinners, the bodily resurrection and physical return of Christ, the authority and truthfulness of God's word. That salvation and justification is by, uh, it is, is by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that genuine faith is marked by repentance from sin, as stipulated in Scripture, by which we put to death the works of the flesh. Such matters are not matters which Christians can agree to disagree so when we're talking about matters of the conscience, we're not talking about those things, okay? We're not talking about the core essentials of Christianity. Remember, we're talking about fellow believers in Christ. They are Christians. They believe in the essential truths and doctrines of Scripture. We need to understand that while there are core essentials which we are to guard, which we cannot compromise on, we must recognize there are also biblical doctrines of lesser importance. That is, doctrines which are important for the life of the church, but are not matters directly concerned with salvation. I say directly concerned because all Scripture is profitable. All things are used by God for our sanctification, our good and encouragement, leading to our ultimate salvation and glorification. But I'm talking about there's these elements by which Christians disagree. Good Christians disagree, and we don't say because you disagree, you're outside of the faith on these matters. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's, there's a, a wider circle here, so we, we call them secondary doctrines. And, and these doctrines affect how we practice our faith. So what, what am I talking about? Well, we practice believer's baptism here. Well, there are people, let's just take um, Presbyterians, Reformed Presbyterians who believe all, all the things that we do except they baptize infants. Are they going to hell? No, they're not. But you know what? We can't serve in the same church because that's going to affect how we practice. We're not going to baptize your babies. In fact, I, I had, we had someone come to our church from another Baptist church because that Baptist church wouldn't baptize their babies. And then they came here and I said, well, why did you think we'd be any different? You could add to this list belief and practice of the so-called miraculous gifts. Uh, you know, I, I taught on these things a few Sundays ago. There's good Christians who disagree. And if you want those things here, that's probably not going to be the place for you. 
philosophy of ministry, governance of the church. If you don't have elders, that doesn't mean your church is apostate. Certainly theological distinctives concerning roles of men and women. We don't have women pastors here. We don't have women teaching over men. Why? Because those are theological distinctives that we believe the Scripture teaches. And that's going to affect how we do things. The extent of God's sovereignty and matters of eternal security. These are all secondary matters. They're very important, right? But we wouldn't say because you disagree necessarily that you're, you're somehow outside of the faith. And for us at Oak Park, the Baptist faith and message is our confession of faith. And this confession serves us well. If you haven't read it, you should have. You checked on the membership box that you did. <laughs> it stipulates for us is what we agree upon. It includes both the, the primary, first level issues and secondary issues. And it says that we will operate under these confessional bounds. That's how a doctrinal statement works. And it helps level the playing field, objectify some of these things. If you come in here and you have a, a, a conviction contrary to that, well, then you're not going to be happy here. Because that's who we are. But what about those things that aren't stipulated in a doctoral statement? We call these third-level issues. And, and now we're getting closer to, I think, the heart of where we're at in Romans 14 and 15. We call these third-level doctrines, matters that we can take various positions on, but should it prohibit us from worshiping in the same congregation? Let me just give a few of these. Second coming. There's various positions here. We're not, we're not going, some are wrong, one's right. But you know what? We're, we recognize good Christians can disagree on these things. Uh, matters of cultural engagement. That's a hot topic today. I think we should be able to disagree and still worship with one another. Worship style preferences. People who can believe the same doctrines can have a different style of worship. Some matters of church governance and philosophy of ministry. How we do things may be different than another church that believes the same exact things we do. Or the way you, you would like things to be done. Specifics over what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. We're going to disagree where that line is, right? What does it mean to be distinct from the world, but not totally separated from the world? That takes wisdom, doesn't it? And so while, yes, there are matters of absolutes, non-negotiables, in this falling world, there are also matters which are not easy for us to nail down. If you think everything is simple and clear-cut, then you're very naive. You've misunderstood the effect of the fall on your own brain. And that's for all of us. And that should produce in us a level of humility. A level of humility when we're dealing with, with matters by which faithful brothers and sisters disagree. The Scripture, I mean, it would be nice in some ways, but God's wiser than we are. The Scripture doesn't give us a clearly defined list of what matters fall into what category, does it? Oh, here's your first tier issue, here's your second tier issues, here's your third tier issues. You might have disagreed on how I laid out some of those things. I'm making my point. I hope. 
But as you move down in category, it becomes less and less defined with what with some matters being more significant than others. And this is where the disagreement can and does occur. So why do I bring this up? And I know this is a, a long introduction. The reason I bring this up is because I want to help us understand what Romans 14 and 15 is not saying. It's not saying be doctrinally or morally laxed. If you've read the rest of Romans leading up to this, you know Paul's not being doctrinally or morally laxed. But yet he has categories by which we're going to find someone's in the wrong and he doesn't think you need to correct them at that time. Do you have categories for that? Or is everything a corruptible offense? Everything need to be spoken into. At some point it does, but you might not be the one to do it. And the truly mature in faith know how to navigate the gray areas. And all of us struggle in this. This is why it's in the scripture. So, so no one here is saying, yeah, I got this one down. I navigate the, the gray areas like nothing else. I've got the biblical wisdom and discernment thing down. No. But there are, Paul is trying to say, those of you who think you're strong, and this is a good word for us in pastoral leadership, deacons, team leaders, those of you who aspire to be leaders in this church, you need to learn these principles. Because this will determine whether you're a leader or not. Can you navigate these waters or do you blow everything up you touch? This is a good word for those of you in seminary. You come out. Yeah, you know the right doctrines. You have it all nailed down and formulated, but you can't communicate it to anyone because you just assassinate them all if they disagree. We're doing, I'm way off, but it's okay. We're doing, this, this Monday night, I'm going to be on a panel with uh, uh, several other pastors. Caleb Creel's going to be with us. Caleb, I don't know where I pointed to, but you're around there. there. And, and the topic is how to lead change in your church. Because we, as we were talking, so many pastors, yeah, they have the right doctrines. They want the right things implemented in their church, but they blow up their church in 90 days. Because everything was a hill to die on. And they were fools running in there. I heard someone say, do not try to change that which you don't truly love. Do you love this church? Do you love this church? Do you love the people in these, I was going to say fuse, but chairs? Do you love them? Do you want to be with them? Do you cherish them? Because if you do, you will be so much more patient. Everything won't be a hill to die on because you believe the best about them. And you'll be patient. you say, you know what? I disagree. I don't think they're where they need to be. But you know what? I love worshiping with them. I love fellowshipping with them. But if you don't really love this church and you just want to fix it, you're going to find yourself actually destroying the work of God. And if that's what you do over right doctrine, you're in the wrong. That's what we're going to learn. And this might be a two-part sermon now, um, but we'll, we'll get there.
haven't even gotten to my points yet. Here's, here's where I, the variables of life are not fixed, are they? Live in a fallen world. We're, we're not in a vacuum. We're not in a laboratory. Nothing is stable because of the curse. Now, the Lord keeps things without flying apart. There is, I'm not saying there's no hope. I'm just saying life is not always cut and dry. And this is where Jesus just blew up the categories of the Pharisees, isn't he? Blew them up. One of my favorite stories is where Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields on the Sabbath. And the, and, and the doctrinal hawks are out there, the Pharisees. And you know what they see? They see the disciples rubbing the, ha- uh, the, grains of he- the heads of grain as they're walking by and popping it in their mouth. Just imagine maybe you're walking by a blackberry bush and you grab one off and you pop it in your mouth and they say, aha, this guy's morally and theologically uh, laxed. He doesn't understand. He must not be from God. And then Jesus says, have, have you not read the story of David when he ate the bread of the presence off the altar? And you might be saying, well, what's the big deal about that? Because it was only for the priest. And anyone who violated that rule would die. He says, you know what David did? He wasn't the priest. He wasn't supposed to eat that bread. But he ate it. He broke the rule. Now, why was that okay? Some of you are like, where are we going with this? We read from Micah. What does the Lord require? Justice and mercy. David was running for his life. He had nothing. And he needed to pick up a sword, and he needed something to eat. And that's all that was left. Life's complicated. Life's complicated, and God is merciful and gracious. Can you be merciful and gracious? If someone's just not to the T exactly what you think they should be. Variables in life aren't fixed. And so this means no two people in this church are going to be exactly the same. Some of us are more uh, leaning one way. Some of us are, are more another. But none of us are exactly the same. And, and for those of you who are fairly new to this church, no two churches are the same. And it's never going to be that way to glory. And so we're going to take various positions on certain things. But that shouldn't prohibit us from worshiping the same congregation. And it shouldn't be a cause for destroying the work of God going on in the midst of this church. And so it is for this reason that Scripture equips us with principles. Principles. Uh, We are are those who are, are born by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. That means something practically. Every conflict that happens in the, in the Scripture, by and large, that I can think of, you think of Jesus and just the example I just gave, Paul here, it's that he's got, he's got to move people from being letter of the law people to spirit of the law people. To understand the heart of the law, which is love fulfills the law. That's a principle that transcends. It can read the situation, can understand gray areas, can understand when complicated situations happen, a context by which people are living in. 
it takes into account all these variables that you can't even take account of them all, and it, and it seeks to do what is right in the moment, guarded by sound doctrine. And so Scripture equips us with principles to deal with differences of the conscience and how we wisely pursue peace in the church where there isn't a clear answer sometimes. And when some just don't get it, that happens as well. Some of you are praying for me. Like, man, he just does not get it. By God's grace, I will one day. And so in these situations, which are never ending, aren't they? Just think about the conflicts you're in right now. These principles apply. These situations are going to require biblical discernment and biblical wisdom. And what I hope to show us is that the truly mature in the faith know how to live by the spirit of the law and are not enslaved by the letter of the law. So for this reason, the onus and responsibility in these situations rests on the truly mature. Why? Because they're able to live in the gray area. They can, in this situation, eat meat. And you know what else they can do? They cannot eat meat. Do you get that difference? The weaker brother can just only not eat meat in this situation. There's only one option for them. But those who are truly mature, who can kind of bounce around, you're also free to limit yourself on behalf of another. That's a great privilege. You need to take serious, uh, uh, seriously. So the truly free are free to exercise their liberty, but they're also free not to exercise it for the sake of another. Because they can discern what's truly good in that moment, what's best at this time, and right in God's eyes, they can do that. To put it in simpler terms, the mature in faith know what hills to die on. Whereas the weak can sometimes think every hill's worth dying on. Every matter's of of, of a fight. Well, if they think it's always a fight, it's going to take the people who know which fight to get in to stop the fight. Do you understand that? And that's what Paul's going to do for us. So to that end, here we go. I think we're just going to cover one of these principles today. We'll, we'll look at the other two next Sunday. I want us to see, over now two weeks, three principles or priorities For the mature in faith to walk in love with the weak so they do not destroy the work of God being accomplished in the church. You hear that? I want us to look at three principles or or priorities so that, that we understand how to navigate disagreements so that we do not destroy what God's doing in our church. That's what I want us to see. And the first priority is is that the mature prioritize love. They prioritize love. Let's look in verse 15. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Okay? Paul explains that if by your liberty, pick pick the thing that you want to put in there, both maybe what you do or a theological uh, a conviction that you hold to that's in a, a third-level category. Something that, that shouldn't keep us from worshiping together. He says, if 
Your insistence upon that causes another person in this church to grieve. You are no longer walking in love. He flips it on you. You've now become just like the Pharisees who laid burdens upon people and would not lift a finger for them. You've ceased to actually be a representative of Christ in the moment. And what Paul is, is saying here, and this is just mind-blowing, especially for us who are very conservative, doctrinally minded, want to make sure that we have the, the lines and the sand clearly delineated. Paul explains that we can be biblically correct concerning a matter and know for certain that that thing is good and right and acceptable in God's sight. But at the same time, if I implement it, press it in upon another person's life at the wrong time, in the wrong place, in the wrong way, that I can actually be disobedient to God. That's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, tells the people, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. You can betray your sound doctrine by your, your actions the way you treat people and talk about people. In other words, just because you're right doesn't mean you're in the right. And if you're just about winning a battle, well, then the battle's lost. And I want you to see this. Paul actually sides with the so-called strong here. He says, you're right. Look in verse 14. And he uses very strong language here. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. Actually settles the matter passively. He's talking to the strong here. Yeah, I know, you're right. In fact, I agree with you. I share the same convictions as you do. I'm persuaded in the Lord. And on this matter, he's, he's probably referring to where Jesus says in the Gospels that it's not the thing that, that one eats that defiles the person, but what comes out of them. In Mark chapter 17, Mark gives a side comment. In saying this, he declared all foods clean. The weak here are just emphatically wrong. They have not only wrong practice, they're not enjoying some good food. Get this, they're wrong theologically. They have wrong doctrine here. They're wrong. They don't understand the new covenant. They don't understand that the Holy Spirit has come within them and has made them holy and acceptable to God. And the things outside do not defile them. They're still living under the old covenant in some sense. They're emphatically wrong. There's nothing right in what they're thinking. But Paul qualifies it. I agree with you. You're right. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Man, he just complicated things, didn't he? It's not cut and dry. I thought it was. You're right, but you're wrong. That's what he said. Paul affirms their theological position, but yet he says, the way you're handling it, you're wrong. And I want you to also notice that Paul doesn't try to resolve the issue. He doesn't then go on the next and add another chapter. He doesn't do what I do and say, all right, this is now going to be two parts. And then say, now let me correct all of you. 
He doesn't do that. In fact, he's already corrected them in the theology that he laid out in chapters 1 through 11. They just don't understand it yet. They don't understand it yet. And you know what he says? I'm okay with it for right now. Let me just talk to you who think you're right. You're right, but you're wrong. You see what he's doing here? He's modeling true maturity. What he's telling us, yeah, yeah, that, that, maybe that person says something in, in community group or, or says something in Sunday school. Yeah, that's, not, that's maybe not accurate or the best way to communicate it. Well, it's probably not the time also to embarrass them and correct them in front of everybody either. Rather, he tells the strong, he says, love your weaker brother or sister. How do you do that? Verse 13. I'm working backwards, by the way. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In other words, he's saying your insistence on you being right can actually be a hindrance to their faith. And if you become a hindrance to your, their faith and you don't give a rip, you no longer actually love. You see what he's doing? So what does Paul mean by putting a stumbling block or hindrance before someone? In verse 15, he calls it grieving a brother or sister. I, I do think this applies. I, I think he's talking about someone's uncomfortable with something. Um, but he, he's going further than that. He's talking about doing something that could cause a weaker brother or sister to go against their conscience and in their mind sin against God. It's where he gets to at the end. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So do you see what, what he's saying here? You begin to insist your liberty, your theological nuance, and you press it upon them without them understanding it and coming to faith in that. You're actually causing them to sin. Do you see that? They don't yet understand. They don't believe that's right yet. And you shame them or you, you put them in a corner, you lecture them and you pressure them and you say, you better be like this. And they cave. You cause that brother or sister to stumble. You cause that person to basically say, I'm going to stop listening to my conscience. Do you know why that's so important and so dangerous? Because you're now training someone to go against what they believe is right. You're training someone to live in sin. That's what you're doing. Even with the thing that you think is good. I love this statement in, in verse 16. He says, So do not let what you regard as good Put in your liberty, your fine, nuanced theology to be spoken of as evil. Why is it evil? Because you're trying to force somebody when their conscience isn't there yet. And that is so damaging because it can numb their conscience so that when they're out, they're already the weaker brother. They're already not as, as formed as you are on that thing. Or, or any matter, maybe. And now their conscience bothers them about something, and they're just like, well, I, I'm sure they don't go through this process, but then they've just learned to numb it, silence it just a little bit. 
and they go down that path. And now they're, they're living in sin. They can say no to God easily. This is why he, um, he says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What's he talking about? What is this stumbling? Where could this lead to? Look in verse 23. Whoever has doubts is what? Condemned. Now he's jumping to the nth degree, but he's saying if they now, their conscience, they learn to ignore their conscience and do what they think is sin, they're now not worshiping God. They are in disobedience to Him, and they've learned to basically walk away from the faith. And that could be what happens. And you destroy a person, even for what is actually good and right. Let me give you an example of this. Say you're watching TV. I know this is trivial because if I bring out really strong issues, well, then might not be the time and place to bring them up. You're watching TV or a movie with a group of people from the church. And while watching it, a believer says to you and to everyone else maybe in the room, hey, I, I don't think we should watch this. I think we need to skip that scene. I don't even think what we're doing here is good. Or maybe it's a more subtle thing. You just notice that person just gets up and walks out. And let's just assume for sake of argument, whatever that's being watched is appropriate and good. What do you do? Do you mock that person? Oh, come on, get over it. You're such a fundy. Get in here. Or do you just say, well, you know what? That's their problem. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And then they realize, I'm alone here. And, and that weaker person could say, all right, I'm going to stay. And they're, and they're just feeling really uncomfortable because they think, I don't think God thinks this is pleasing. I don't think this is good. And yet they're staying there. You've now become an enabler. And you're now training that person to go against their conscience. I've seen, I've seen this happen in this church. People mocked because they won't now go to a certain store because of a policy they've made. That store's made. What are you going to do? Just lock yourself up at home, never go out? And what are you doing? You're basically trying to pressure that, that person into being like you to share the liberty and understanding you have without them coming to the same understanding. You're jumping the, the, the element of faith. You're not informing their conscience. You're shaming them. And you're actually destroying them when you do that. You see that? That's weighty. So it's much more than just being right. You've got to be tactful. You've got to be caring. You've got to, to bring people along and just bring more people into the room. You've, you've got to lead a church in a direction if you're in leadership. You can't just, well, that's the right thing to do. The Bible says it. Let's do it. No, you've got to inform them. You've got to teach. You've got to bring people along Otherwise, you could destroy them and then destroy the work of God. Some time ago, I knew a woman who had come out of very strict pseudo-Christian context. I call it pseudo-Christian because doctrinally was very questionable 
but um, had strict rules, very strict rules that everyone had to adhere, particularly women. Women could not wear makeup, they, they couldn't wear pants, uh, and, and, and couldn't cut their hair. And this woman comes out of that context and, 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 and one day shows up not only wearing pants, not only wearing makeup, but her hair's cut. Everyone's encouraging. Oh, this is great. And by the way, I would think that's good. Don't, don't hear me arguing otherwise. It was a big deal. It represented something. I'm done with that. But what became apparent was that she was also done with the Lord. What became apparent was that this decision wasn't based on, oh, I've come to an understanding through the scripture and I've learned and now I have faith in Christ and I realize that these things don't make me unclean. No, it was that I learned, she learned how to ignore her conscience and has ultimately walked away from the Lord. That's an extreme example, but it's a real one. And this is what Paul's getting after. And so where I want to appeal to us this morning as we get ready to close, and we'll look at two other priorities next week, prioritizing the kingdom and prioritizing faith. Just because you're right doesn't mean you're in the right. And you have to be sensitive to where people are. And you need to understand these matters of conscience or else you could be actually an agent of evil destroying the work of God. And I'm confident none of us want to be that, right? We want to be people who are promoting the kingdom ethic of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that next week, okay? Father, Lord, these are difficult matters because, Lord, we, your word is clear on many, many things. Your word is good, is right, and all that it teaches has no error and yet, Lord, you chose to give us principles to live by because we live in a fallen world. Everything doesn't come out in a formula that we can just punch in the computer and spit out. And so, Lord, you, you've given us wisdom. You've given us your spirit, your Holy Spirit, which guides us and leads us into all truth. And as we continue to wash ourselves in the Scripture and our conscience becomes more biblically informed, and we're more mature, we, we can learn to bear with those who are less mature than us. Because we realize that their immaturity doesn't make us unclean. Doesn't make us less acceptable to you. And we thank you. Because we know that they're, they're just as acceptable in your eyes as, as we are. Because we're both in Christ. And so Lord, I pray that as we, as we sing to you, as we worship Lord, may we hold on to those truths which are dear. And Lord, may the love that you have poured into our hearts be poured out towards one another. And Lord, I pray that, that if anyone here is struggling, struggling in their conscience, Lord, I pray that you would preserve them and you would use those of us who are mature in the faith to be agents of your grace, knowing when's the right time to correct knowing how to encourage so that they may in due time grow into maturity in the faith. Lord, we pray these things knowing that you are the Lord of the church and you are the one who keeps us and protects us to the end. And it's in your name that we pray.
Amen.